And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels had you ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What I thought I would do, last time I just introduced a little bit of the what I thought the situation of the letter was, and I thought I would do not the whole theology of the book of Hebrews, but just introduce the theology. And let me start it with a kind of shocking statement. Um, and that is that Christ did not die for your sins. Uh, are you shocked? I've never heard you say that before. And if <laughs> there are there are several passages that you could immediately quote and say, "Wait a minute." Uh, in Paul, he he may just say exactly that as a part of the. But what I mean by this, I, I'm afraid that we've under, misunderstood this, or we've understood it in a way that the New Testament doesn't mean it. And that is that we tend to conflate all of the work of the atonement into the death of Christ. And the death of Christ, I think, in these passages, uh, is not functioning in that way, but is functioning as a part for the whole a kind of synecdical idea that they refer to the death of Christ but they're not referring to the death of Christ in an exclusive uh, manner from his life his resurrection and his ascension and this can be real important in the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews people are going to say oh there's no resurrection in the book of Hebrews uh, well, first of all, I think that's not true, but I, I think it's also the case that in the book of Hebrews, there is a focus on the resurrection and ascension as a part of the working out of the atonement that is just, if we don't begin the book, begin reading it that way, I'm afraid we're going to miss that part of the book. Uh, and this is, you know, both conservatives and liberals read the death of Christ as if that's the full work of the atonement. Uh, and the manner in which they, they focus on it, they you know, it's either a payment you know, to God or it's, uh, in a liberal theology, a kind of doorway into a disembodied bliss. And what is taking place in the book of, uh, of Hebrews in regard to resurrection and ascension, I believe is to say that the embodiment of Christ is eternal. And this is key then to understanding the work of atonement in the book of Hebrews. You know, I thought of all kinds of clever titles of tonight, none of which, you know, I, I thought did Christ, Christ did not die for your sins. Yeah, you know, that would be... But, you know, looking for the body of Jesus or... And you understand that in a liberal theology, what they're saying about the body is, well, Jesus sort of left it behind. 
he, he used that up and he went on. But I think what we're getting in the book of Hebrews in the theory of atonement is that it's precisely because of his embodiment through the blood, body, flesh, the self, the, you know, how, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to say it in three different ways, that he's entered into the Holy of Holies. Um, and so I think that Hebrews is a corrective to a, a focus, and I have to admit that in my own theology I have sometimes perhaps focused too much exclusively on the death of Christ. And I think the book of Hebrews is the corrective to this. Now this may seem odd because if there were any book in the Bible that would make a case for saying that Christ's death saves, it might be the book of Hebrews. Uh, because he's going to talk about uh, the you know Yom Kippur, the atonement, uh, the day of atonement. But I think that what we're doing, we're tending to read that material, bringing already a preconceived notion to it. And so let me state the negative and a positive, and that is, I think in Hebrews that Jesus' death is not where atonement occurs in an exclusive fashion. Rather, it is the resurrected, ascended Jesus who passes into the Holy of Holies and who continually makes intercession for us there. That is, on what basis do we have a high priest in heaven? It's on the basis of the embodied Jesus being resurrected and ascended. You know, this is the, the, what do you do with the ascension of Christ? I think the writer of Hebrews tells us we need the resurrection and ascension of Christ as much as we need the death of Christ because it's precisely in and through the Son being at the right hand of the Father. You know, the picture is that he's seated at the right hand of the Father making continually continual intercession. So uh, this is precisely the opposite of the way most people are going to read the book of Hebrews. Uh, but it's also the opposite of a traditional focus on the death of Christ. So I want to get that out there and say this is what I'm, this is the way I'm thinking of reading it. Um, that the ascended Christ is the high priest who intercedes. And that's then, you know, the image of the cultic, or the cultists, you know, the Jewish cultists, the writer of Hebrews is going to appeal to that more than anyone. We've already corrected a little bit of that in that we've talked about uh, the two goats theories. You know, what, what, is the, what is the meaning of the sacrifices? Are they, is it that God wants death? Or in fact, was the blood of the sacrifice put on the, you know, the, uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant or upon the, the priests or upon the at times people? What does the blood represent? Well, what we've been saying is the blood represents life. It doesn't represent death. And this is, you, you almost, it's like we're misreading the whole thing. You know, what is it that the, the, temp, the tabernacle, the writer of Hebrews doesn't refer to the temple, but to the tabernacle. What is it that it needed cleansed from? Um, well, it needs cleansed. Everything, you know, whether you're talking about the menstrual cycle, whether you're talking about male semen, whether you're talking, you know, go through all those purification rituals, what's all that stuff about? Well, I think ultimately it's talking about loss of blood, loss of life, you know, it's connecting those things to death. 
That is the, the ritual purification and the moral purification. The moral purification is always connected to sin, and sin is always connected to death. So what, is, what the, the rituals are about is not to bring death before God in some sort of ritual fashion, but in fact to cleanse the tabernacle of death itself. Um, and this then gets at, I think, the thing we need cleansing from. He's got, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about human consciousness needing cleansing. What do we need cleansing from? Well, we need cleansing from the same thing that the tabernacle needed cleansing from. Sin and death, right? But I think we can. there's a kind of deep psychology at work in the book of Hebrews in its discussion of death. I put a note in here that I should make sure and refer to Priscilla, the writer of Hebrews, um, that she says that the culmination of the saving work of Christ is in the, the ascension. I don't know any, anywhere else where you, you, you have that picture, but it's a clear picture in, you know, this is the way I'm going to read the section from 11 where it's picturing Christ coming into the Holy of Holies. Uh, the entire tabernacle, the priestly system, uh, that sin and death are the impurity that the writer of Hebrews are saying is actually in a real world way gotten rid of through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Uh, and so the way, you know, the question here, how does sin plague our conscience? Well, I think the sin plagues our conscience in the same way as sin makes the priest clean, unclean, makes the tabernacle unclean. In chapter 2, he talks about it in terms of the de devil's manipulation of the fear of death and that that enslaves us. So when the writer is talking about sin and death, he's not, and you've heard this is, you know, my, the passage in Hebrews is one of my favorite passages in describing the orientation to death that constitutes sin. But I think that the whole book of Hebrews then comes behind that to show that uh, this cleansing of conscience uh, and the cleansing of the tabernacle, you know, what is it that death is displaced by? Well, this isn't a mystery, right? Life. What is it that in our own consciousness is displaced? Well, it's the life, you know, the resurrection life. And this is uh, the idea that it's the eternal life of Christ that is the sacrifice. That is, in what way is Christ, you know, what in what way is this, he the sacrifice? Well, if we get it straight that the Old Testament sacrifices were representative of a life dedicated to God, what they're pointing to is the eternal life of Christ dedicated then to the high priestly role in which Christ is the mediator. Ironically, in a traditional, a classical reading, death is made the answer to our problem. Oh, Jesus died, and the focus then is on the death as if that is the sole work of the atonement. But death is not the answer to our problem. Death is our problem, which Christ overcomes. Uh, and the answer to the problem of death is not more death. 
The answer to the problem of, de of death is life. And that's the whole point of the death of Christ on the cross. So Jesus' death is not one of blood spilt for an angry God. You know, he needs death in this picture to, to satisfy his wrath. I think this gets every part of the thing wrong. It gets, first of all, what sacrifices were for, and it certainly misses what the death of Christ was for. So, the, in the goat sacrifice, the blood of the goat is applied to the altar, to the elements, not to bring death before God. That would be blasphemous. You know, that would be an unreligion. That would be un-Jewishness. The blood was to bring life before God. And so in talking about focusing exclusively on the death of Christ, I think we've made a kind of blasphemy of the death of Christ. It's as if God likes death and sacrifice and blood. Uh, and I think this is precisely the wrong understanding. I don't think this is a wrong understanding we should be too shocked at because I think this wrong understanding is always the orientation that we fall back to in pagan religion in a blasphemous understanding of who God is. So, in the life of Christ, it is not the death of Jesus which God desires, it's the life of Christ. And already you're getting the feel, okay, we're not going to, then we need the Gospels. We need the life of Christ. We need uh, uh, the overcoming and defeating of death in the life, death, and resurrection. So the resurrection becomes a key element, and I think it is a key element in the book of Hebrews. I won't make the case tonight, but as we go through it, I'll make the case that resurrections is precisely, you know, we did this in First John. I think John is similar in that he need not, they, the, the writers of the New Testament didn't always appeal to the resurrection, they presumed that this was what we all understood to be, you know, when we're, when we're talking about uh, the way in which Christ has uh, uh, overcome things. So if I understand the way you're framing this, the, the theology of sin is inexorably linked to death itself. So that when we talk about the theology of sin, sin is death or leads to death, um, but it, it's not just a missing of the mark, necessarily, that it's, it's a leading to death, and so what Christ does on the cross is he overcomes sin and death, but not separately, but that they are one and the same. Yes, that would be my understanding, is that the when you say sin, you said death, not just as a result of sin, but death is integral to the orientation that constitutes sin. And this is, this is not a strange way of thinking of death. It is the, it is the natural fruit of sin. Uh, is it a punishment for sin? Well, you can talk about it that way, but it's, it's a punishment that is also a fruit. And, and so our problem, yeah, you're right, that I'm not, you know, is sin simply, oh, we missed the mark? Well, the problem with that definition, it's just an etymological definition of, you know, homardiology. Uh, what it's missing is that, no, this thing is bigger than the law. Uh, this thing is bigger than idolatry. This thing is 
holistic, it's systemic, it's cosmic. And so too then, what Christ does is when we, I think that what we're picturing here is then of cosmic proportion when we see the ascension of Christ, the resurrection, the death, the life. This is the way in which the cosmos is set to rights. Yeah. And I think that's the, the uh, I think that's there in the background of the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews is easy to misunderstand if you start out wrong. And so that's why I thought, we'll start right. That, you know, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about Jesus as after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And the idea here is, well, not that I don't think he's necessarily making a historical saying, oh, he's literally from, but you've heard this, this part. You know, well, what is significant about Melchizedek? Well, he's a priest forever because he has no beginning and he has no end. Uh, That is, in in terms of the literature, Melchizedek, I don't think he was literally. But the way that a priest normally functioned is you knew when he was born, you knew who his parents were, you knew when he died. And so the whole point of Jesus' high priesthood being in the order of Melchizedek is inclusive of an eternal, ascended, resurrected, bodily reign in heaven. Where is the body of Christ? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's on the basis, when we get to the section, you know, where he talks about Jesus having gone through the veil, uh, I think, again, uh, what, you know, if you're doing a kind of theological liberalism here, you know, you could picture, oh, he's passed through the veil of flesh. No, what that's talking about is that Jesus' entry into the Holy of Holies is on the basis of his embodiment. Uh, That the blood, the life, or himself uh, incarnate is the basis in which he enters into the Holy of Holies. Uh, The writer says he would have needed to suffer often, if that were not the case, since the foundation of the world, But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I think the himself there, who is himself? Well, it's all that Christ is, not just his death. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. Um, So it seems highly likely that the traditions the author and audience knows about, and I'm quoting here from a guy named David Moffat, uh, it seems likely that his audience know about Jesus' present, present his death and the salvation he procured in synecdical terms. And so Paul does this. Paul most clearly says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised. Well, you you know, my statement here, Christ did not die for our sins. Yes, but remember the way I said it. Yes, what I'm saying is that Paul means by this not simply that he died for our sins. Go on down in that same chapter, 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Uh, you are still in your sins. So, referring to the death of Christ, Paul is clearly, even in that chapter, not referring to the death in isolation from the resurrection. Uh, Romans 4.25, he says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is, the resurrection is a part of the atoning work of Christ. I think in the book of Hebrews, the resurrection and the ascension are part of the atoning work of Christ. This, let me, this is David Moffat. It is part of the distinctive theological reflection in this homily that the author expands upon the mechanics of the process of sacrifice in order to show how, in biblical terms, Jesus as the high priest he is confessed to be affected atonement. The writer is not denying the importance of Jesus' death in affecting salvation, but clarifying where that event fits in a larger process. He does not conflate that event with the atoning moment. Rather, he locates Jesus' death at the front end of a process that culminates in the atoning moment. I didn't, he may not have been exactly clear there. What Moffat means by the atoning moment is when Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies in the ascension into the presence of God, and there the atoning work of Christ has begun. But that atoning work is inclusive of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus is pictured as offering his body, his blood, himself. And the movement of this offering is one that places him in the resurrected and ascended body in the presence of the Lord, so that the offering is ultimately delivered by Christ in the Holy of Holies. What the writer is doing, he's taking the picture in uh, Hebrew, uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews, he's picturing this almost in a more literal fashion than we're sometimes used to reading it. We sometimes make this a kind of figure, all that figuratively from the cross he entered the Holy of Holies. Well, no, actually, when we come to this section, what we're going to read is, no, he's, he's literally thinking, seeing the resurrection and ascension as Christ delivering himself as the sacrifice. He is the sacrificed one. So when you look for a sacrifice, don't look for a dead body. I mean, that's, I think that's what we're used to. No, we're looking for the living Lord. And so, too, the living sacrifices that we're to become are in a model, modeled on Christ. Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. And what is heaven? That's just where God is, right? The presence of God. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Uh, and so, you know, the, this is Hebrews 9.24, the priest goes in every year, he offers the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies with the blood of another. That is, with the blood other than his own. And then in 9.24, Jesus appeared be, uh, before God's presence, not to offer himself many times, but now once for all time. Again, He's not simply talking about the efficaciousness of the death of Christ. 
He's talking about the eternal mediating presence of Christ in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. Then the author goes on to say that in 926, Jesus appeared once for all time at the consummation of the ages for the purpose of the annulment of sin. What's sin? Well, we've, we've already connected sin as alienation. Sin is death. Sin is uh, absence. Sin is, And so the presence of Christ before God on our behalf literally overcomes the problem of sin. So he's arguing that Jesus' presentation of his blood himself before God in the heavenly holy of holies is the sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. Everything about him. Jesus' self is the object that when that he offered when he appeared before God. Jesus' self is therefore the sacrifice that affected atonement. And so the conceptual center is not Jesus' earthly death outside the gates of Jerusalem, but his living human presence in heaven. Jesus' bodily resurrection uh, to indestructible life. You know, he defeated death once for all. He's not going to die again, and that's the significance of his resurrection. And this holds together the writer's depictions of Jesus' offering of his body, his blood himself before God in heaven. This is this is Moffat. Having been made perfect, this is Priscilla, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, uh, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order. You know, you've heard this part about Melchizedek, right? Those of you who have done Hebrews. Uh, the Lord is at your right hand. He's quoting Psalms 110. And by the way, you, some of you wanted to do the Old Testament. I can't think of a better book to do the Old Testament from than the book of Hebrews. Because he's going to continually, he's continually echoing Psalms and, and the Levitical uh, picture of the sacrifices. That's my introduction uh, to some of the theology of Hebrews. And now we'll dig into the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> the the opening the opening statement in this was almost overwhelming. You know, you could we could you know, and so I I must say I was a bit cowardly. I thought it's going to take me a while to to even you know, cover that because he's, as you've often heard about the writer, he, he is an eloquent, you know, what he's doing is, is quite eloquent in linguistically, but also in the ideas. She, she, I'm sorry. Oh, I slipped. Did you just assume their gender? The, the, she, yes. They, in reference to the author, I actually had. I th I think there's a. Uh, the more I read it, the more I think there's really a good case to be made for Priscilla. <laughs> in all of this, what is the what is the incarnation play into the story of atonement? So that yeah, that's the key question because usually the incarnation 
is kind of, and when we talk about incarnation, the only thing about it that's important is the death of Christ. And so, what I'm saying, and what the writer of Hebrews, she, is saying, uh, is that, no, it's the, the whole life's work of Christ. How does Christ atone for sin? Well, in and through the movement, you know, and I think here when we look at the, the uh, Levitical priests, movement uh, it's uh, it's inclusive of his encountering overcoming death in his life he's going to picture the the power of Satan as uh, he contr- we're enslaved in and through the fear of death and so one of the things that Christ is doing is encountering or or defeating Satan but when is he doing that oh he's doing that in his life so it gives us a I think we can go back and start reading the life of Christ and say, this saves us. But what's being modeled here is a life that we are to imitate in confrontation with the principalities and powers, in confrontation with Satan. So that, that's a simple answer. But, and so the incarnation, I think, implies the death. The death implies the resurrection. The resurrection implies the ascension. So in the New Testament, somebody talks about the death of Christ. Well, of course, they mean by that the full movement of the life, death, and resurrection. Did that, did that hit up on it some? Somewhat. Uh, I have a, you know, a motivation behind it where um, my next Sunday school group the leader is going to cover the incarnation and I'm just afraid he's just going to sort of do classic definitions of you know, half God, half man and I'd like to bring more significance to the incarnation than just that. Oh, oh yeah, so what I've just said is that Jesus is incarnate forever. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the teaching of the New Testament. Right. Jesus is embodied forever. And in some way that's linked to the incarnation of us all. The body of Christ. You know, th- this is the classic, classical notion of deification. But you don't even have to do that. Just recapitulation. The idea that he became man that we might become God. Or if you don't, if you don't like that, that in Romans 5, that... The fir- he's recapitulating all that the first Adam did in the second Adam's embodiment. Here is true man forever. That blows your mind away. Because I think what we're e- what's easier for us to handle is, yeah, he kind of, you know, he's kind of like an avatar. Uh, you know, he became, he embodied, and then he kind of, he floated off into outer space in the ascension and did away with his body. But his whole incarnation uh, is a living out of his final goal of overcoming sin and death. So that would, that's it. Yeah. Would you say that like if so if you were to do, to have a simple state, statement about the atonement to say like uh, it's you know um, free, freeing us from, from or like you know what it does I guess would be. Uh, 
salvation from, from sin and death, right? Or, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, and so, the, I think we've talked about it before that this uh, happens through, I guess, the, like the exposition of the, the principalities and powers, like exposing them for what they are as a lie, and, mm-hmm. and as well as sin and death, you know. And so, um, so, if we're talking about the incarnation playing a part in that, like, would the would the role be that, um, I guess the the incarnation is a part of that exposing of 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 what we're talking about in 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 just the way that or what the the stuff that, that Jesus you know uh, brought to us and and, and uh, like the new way of thinking and, and living and whatever um, like all of that is uh, I guess a part of, of like like you said, it's it's working towards that final goal, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of not answering my own question as I'm talking, but like I, I'm just like trying to place it, I guess. But. Yeah, no, I think that I think our in other words, it helps to be to have come from a clear paganism here. Christian paganism gets us confused at this point. And that is that a clear paganism says, well, this world is not real, and when we pass through the veil of death, we'll come to reality. That's just the way Platonic thought works. That's the way Hinduism, Buddhism, I think that's just pagan, that's just the religions, that they're all talking about the veil of death. And that's the way people are reading Hebrews. They say, oh, look, Jesus passed through the veil. No, it's precisely the opposite, that Christ has come and the full reality of the incarnation is a this-worldly reality. This thing is really real. I, you know, I, I, I think we're still doing Gnosticism for the most part in evangelical Christianity. You know, when we die and go to heaven, you know, then the real stuff will begin. Uh, and so the incarnation is thought of as a kind of temporary measure on the part of God. It's a confusion that when we we read in Revelations that we'll be new heavens and new earth and we'll get a new body that somehow this new body automatically goes to heaven. But when you're talking about a new heavens and new earth and new body, it sounds a whole lot more like a, a perfected existence of something similar to what we can relate to now. And yeah, and the idea is that it's in continuity. And that's Paul's whole argument that in and you know the passage I just quoted was from First Corinthians fifteen, in which he's talking about the resurrected body. The resurrected body is uh, the body that's been planted. Uh, that is that Paul is arguing that there's a direct continuity between the body of Christ and his resurrected body, so too between our bodies and our resurrected bodies. That it's not a, an obliteration of one and, and starting over. Know that it's all on a continuum. And the same thing too then in Paul's picture of creation. That creation itself is being redeemed. That creation itself is being made new. Uh, you know, if, if this were not the nature of salvation, we would not need the radical kind of incarnation that we're talking about. There's a verse in Isaiah that says that uh, God is speaking through Isaiah. God says um, something along the lines of, and I created the earth uh, to be inhabited. 
And of course, when we think in Hapta, yeah, God, you made, like we would think of Genesis, yeah, God, you made um, the fish, the birds, um, the, the land creatures, insects, etc., etc. But I think what we felt to include is, I think God is also including himself into that when he says he made the earth to be inhabited, that he too will inhabit the earth. Yeah, and the, right, if I if I were more spiffy on my Hebrews, I could I could tell you where the writer of Hebrews is going to refer to Isaiah to make the point you're making right there, and that is that this whole movement is not outside of creation in the cosmos. This whole movement is on the part of creation. Well, and it goes back to the discussion that, that you and I have had with my recent reading with John Walton with the. The reading Genesis 1 is a temple dedication that, that the seventh day is when the, the work gets done because he is now fulfilled and inhabited the creation. And it's at that point that uh, the, the work of, of creation is, uh, is completed and ongoing. Um, and so when you talk about inhabited, if it's a, a, a temple ceremony, the temple ceremony, um, whether you consider it Genesis 1 or any other temple ceremony, the ceremony is only complete when it's inhabited for its intended functions. When the God enters the temple. Yeah. So on the seventh day, God rested. That mean, doesn't mean he... He went somewhere else. No, that means he entered the temple, right. that he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The writer of the Hebrews is going to use that language of Sabbath rest, you know, and say, do not fail to enter in. The idea is that this Sabbath, this entry into the presence of God is available to us now. Yeah, same. And I, I always think John Walton would be so much better if he appealed to the New Testament to make his case. Because I agree with him, yeah. but he's made, he's arguing his case on the basis, you know, largely of other religions and then of 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 the Old Testament. But I think his case is clinched once you turn to things like First John, but also the Book of Hebrews. I think is doing the same thing. So this is John. Who's John? John. John Walton. Yeah, I, I, I've got, uh, and there's a follow-up that came out in 2015 about Adam and Eve, but um, I haven't read it yet, but I think his methodology is something that is worth exploring, not only for the Old Testament, but as I am interested as well, to how do we, how do we make that important corrective that, to try to recognize our own modern tendencies to interpret what we read as literal but it's literal in the sense that we are bringing our modern foundation to the text that would make no sense to the current people yeah 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 that that's a hard bridge to gap I think we're all we're all bound by modernity and and by a kind of scientism and well I think John Walton the part of the reason why he applies to a bunch of these different things is that they're the ones who create the to close the gap of the distance they're the evidences that 
the line of thinking that he's, he's reasoning with are uh, valid, but I think with the New Testament in particular, we've got more resources to, to bridge that gap. And the, but the interesting thing is that maybe he's maybe he's wise to avoid the New Testament because we got the same problem when we come to the New Testament. Right. People are misreading the New Testament just like they're misreading Genesis. Right. And and once you this is the thing that I think with the writer of Hebrews Hebrews is confusing to people. In other words, they don't they don't know what to do with this book, and and so you got people saying, well, the writer gets confused at this point. No, the, 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 the readers are confused because they've not seen this picture that he is presented. That there is this, it does make sense, but you've got to get all the, you've got to get rid of the modernity. You've got to get rid of the notions of, you know, Calvinism and Anselm and yeah, one one of the things he says that I think is so poignant is when when he makes the uh, the assertion, and I think this applies to our understanding and reading in general, is that we don't want to say that the Hebrews were influenced by their culture, but that they are a part of their culture. And just as we're thinking, it's not necessarily that we are influenced by our culture. We are, we are our culture. And, um, and so we understand certain things because we are a part of the culture, not just because somebody else has outside influenced us mm. as if we are some blank slate right, that, right. that's absorbing things that we... It's a, it's a gradual process of joining and becoming of the culture. We've got to extract ourselves from this thing. Which is a difficult prospect. And if you, if you don't even have a point, if you don't even recognize that you need extraction, right. well, you, you're already cemented into this culture that you're a part of. Right. And so as we read scripture, we begin to get a glimpse of an alternative. And I think we, an alternative reality, mm-hmm. and and the writer of Hebrews is going to say that you've not come to a mountain of smoke and fire, and no, this is the real thing. Right. Uh, and the sad irony is that we 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 miss reality, we miss the reality, the strange new world of the Bible, because we imagine that what our cultural inheritance has given us is reality. And so it skews our understanding to such a degree that I think we miss it. Now that's not, you know that's not then that that goes back to you, Evan. You know the deception. The deception is just part of you know the the, the this thing has is just sort of the thing we're all inculcated into. Uh, it's the way that we're framed. It's the worldview. It's the Weltanschauung uh, that Trent was going to talk about later. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, it's the that our the very lens of our interpretation is such that uh, it and I, the thing I think that we can begin to see though is the way in which it's skewed, the way in which it's mistaken, the way in which it's deceived will always uh, that it will be the same thing over and over again. You can do this; it can be manifested in many different ways. 
but it in a sense that the the idolatries of this world always construct themselves in the same way and so if we can if we can get the kind of universal message that's being conveyed it is deconstructive of the deception that has been put upon us I don't know if that may be so vague I'm not talking to you now but and that might is that how so like that then is how the incarnation kind of continues is that that I guess the not that the deconstruction I guess is still going on but like it's like we're still bringing like the kingdom's still coming like it's it's not like fully here yet or whatever but it's it's like advancing I guess and that like the incarnation the body of Christ like continues to kind of expose the, the truth and whatnot. Yeah, it's, I, I think deconstruction is still taking place. As we're talking about this, I'm thinking of Michelangelo. You know, he came and there, there was a, a, a big block of marble, and somebody said, well, how in the world do you ever get, you know, a beautiful statue like David out of this block of marble? And he says, I just chip away everything that's not David. <laughs> and in a sense, we're kind of extracting ourselves from the rock of the culture that surrounds us. And we're all in process. Some of us, you know, just kind of finger up, you know, out of the block. But that, I think that, that, that yeah, in a sense, we're, we're always in that. Uh, now, I don't mean to state this in a, in, a, in a negative way. It's not just that we're saved from sin and death, but that in a positive sense, the reality of the culture of the church, the body of Christ, is the thing that, that that that's the framework, that's the lens, that's the the reality from which we can work. But I think that for most of us, that's so. To talk that way, oh, he's talking. He's doing religion now. He's being religious. But when we overcome the sin, we overcome the deception too, and so that's how we, beyond the hope of the resurrection, the overcoming of. Sin and death is the overcoming of uh, sort of the acceptance that death is the answer. When death is the enemy, we reorient ourselves and, and are able to see past certain deceptions and hopefully continue to learn um, past deceptions. Yeah, I think this is, and, and you just said everything. And if you don't know, in other words, I think what you just said, this is, you can take this up. And again, this, this may be, sound unconvincing to anybody, but if you had philosophy, if you've had world religions, uh, this is what the philosophical project is about. You know, this is Derrida's picture of Descartes. What's the cogito about? Oh, He's denying his own mortality. He's trying to, to grab immortality in and through the cogito. I think that's just a description of philosophy. You could do, you know, this is Freud. This is, that, that it's all about a kind of claim to immortality. And so, yeah, I think that... In death being the answer to that by right. the mortal coil getting to your true form... But the Hebraic sense is that whatever our existence separate from our bodies, that we are meant to be both flesh and animation. The, the, 
the, there is no divide, there is no dualism between spirit and body. Well, kind of like what you said before, Paul, that what, what I thought it was uh, when you said about John Walton um, on the Sabbath, we enter into God's presence, and Christ said something uh, about abiding, a mutual abiding. Uh, abide in me as I abide um, in my Father, my Father in me. Uh, and of course, Christ says that uh, that uh, if we if we abide in Him, He will abide in us. So there isn't this. Oh, you guys gotta die so that you guys so I can abide, or you guys can abide. No, no, you guys are okay as long as you follow my commandments for love. Right, right. And when you do that. I can abide in you guys, and you guys can abide in me. And that's the temple language of John. But you know that. I'm just saying that for everybody else. That, that when he's talking about the mini-room mansion that he goes to prepare, the, the dwelling place, all of that's the same language. All of that's the oikos of God, the family of God. That is an immediate uh, reality, that the abiding is a present tense abiding. It's not a future... Yeah, yeah and, I, and, I, and I see that resurrection is kind of tied to that. Um, that um, when Christ was talking to Martha, Mom, and Martha doesn't seem to understand. Martha, all Martha understands about Christ is that you are the one that's sent by God and you are the Messiah. And, that, and, and what she understands of the resurrection is that it's an event that will happen in the future. But Christ says to her, no, I'm the resurrection. I'm life. And for Martha, Mar- Martha doesn't understand that Christ can abide in us and we can un- abide in Him. And that doesn't have to wait. That can happen now. That's the whole purpose of John. Yeah. 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 And by the way, there, I, I said this in the Gospel of John. The, the thinking of the writer of Hebrews and, and the Gospel of John are very, there's a lot of similarities there. And I think we're hitting them right now. Well, when, even when you said uh, allusions to the Old Testament, uh, John in particular, the Gospel of John in particular, is constantly referencing Old Testament. Yeah, it's just a, it's a continual echo. When you see it in John, then you're open to seeing it. I think it's there throughout the New Testament, right. but it's especially there yeah. in John, and it's there. It's obviously there in Hebrews because that's what the project of the writer of Hebrews is all about: mm-hmm. is to you know talk about the transition to to the from the shadows to the reality. Are there other thoughts? I felt like I monopolized a lot. <laughs> you speak for us. I, yeah, I like to come and visit Paul a lot. So. Oh, we're so glad you could come. Have a good teacher. Yeah, I didn't mean that anybody, if anybody else had, or he had profound objections to say. Yeah. That's not right. You can't <laughs> say <laughs> that. We need Joel. Yeah, well, Joel's profoundly smarter than me, so. I don't have profound objections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We tend to, we tend not to talk about 
I mean, yeah, we do in the sense that yes, we pray in Jesus' name, oh. and all that, but we don't talk about these things. What, what is that really? So, I mean, I'm still having a little hard time processing that. Yeah, because a I, bodily, a bodily, bodily ascension. ascension yes. yes. But then we're talking about we were talking about bodily incarnate Christ seated at the right hand of God. We don't hear that much, so I'm just trying to. And I think the reason we don't hear it much is because of our bad theology, because that just confuses everything. Because what we want is the ascension so Jesus can get rid of the body so that whole incarnation thing can be over and done with and we can get back to doing good Greek thinking in which there's an absolute dualism between embodiment and God. And so I think the ascension is a kind of problem for us. And the reason we're not seeing ascension in the book of Hebrews is because of we've exclusively focused on the death of Christ and so we're not reading the writer here correctly, I think. I'm just I'm agreeing with you. Did anybody I don't in know my inter- agree? Huh? <laughs> I don't know what there was to agree with. I was just saying I'm trying to get my mind around it because we don't really talk about this. Yeah. I'm not saying I got my mind around it. Okay, well I'm just still trying. I mean, it's not like, oh, I'll explain it to you later, honey. <laughs> it's it's mind blowing. It's it's uh, it's inconceivable. Well, it seems... well, it's a mystery. Yes, thank you. Because you can't really. Explain it. Well, in our modern thinking, we we no longer associate the universe as the dwelling place of as a physical dwelling place of the heavens. And so the idea of uh, an incarnation, a, a physical body uh, ascending, ascending to where? Um, and I, I think that, that that is a question that many people will have. But I don't think that God is all too concerned with giving us the answers to all of that and, and unfortunately particularly for the modern mindset there's a lot of that in the Bible that in our modern mindset God has not thought it necessary to give modern 20th, 21st century modern reasons and rationale and details to, to everything this is, uh, I think this is the, uh, it, it, you may not understand how steeped we all are in modernity until we hit this issue. And you go, you wanna, if you want to understand this, you want the enlightened answer to this. Go back and read John Robinson, Honest to God. You know, he was the bishop of, who write, you know, writes this book on theological liberalism. And he makes fun of you know, the whole idea of the heavens. And, and what John Robinson is defending is, is what theological liberalism continues to sell, and that is a kind of Platonic dualism, in which material reality is unreal. I mean, this is, you get it up, you know, you, there is a very, but there's a very close, I, I hesitated to say what I was going to say, but there's a very close relationship 
between theological fundamentalism and theological liberalism on this issue because they've both focused on the death of Christ in such a fashion that the death of Christ bears all the weight. And then in both instances, you know, with uh, fundamentalism, it's being saved from hell. With theological liberalism, it's kind of passage into disembodiment. But it's the same thing. It's both future, it's all futuristic, it's all otherworldly, and it's all focused almost exclusively on the death of Christ. I, to my mind, this issue hits the center of modernity more than anything else. And I think it's important for us as people who, whether we're going to be leading as pastors or youth ministers, I think it's important to recognize, at least from my own personal journey, how difficult this transition has been. Um, and if we are to, to try to help congregations, that this is going to be difficult for them to swallow because they've, they've been steeped in another tradition, one so baptized in modernity that uh, that other thoughts are going to be um, just completely foreign to them. It'll, it'll turn their world upside down. I mean, if you if you think of the Genesis one, like because of what we talked about, if you think of Genesis one as a functional creation rather than a material creation, and understand what that means, then as you're reading that, as you're trying to reorient yourself to that, it really does you know, challenge you in a way that makes you feel like you're disoriented. Yeah. And, and so um, I, think it's, I think it's important for all of us to recognize where we're at in our own journey and understanding some of this stuff and to be delicate and, uh, and trying to pass that on. And, and, uh, and I struggle with that. As I sat in my last Sunday school group and we went over... Genesis 3 in the fall and what I heard was just normal I mean I, I don't know there was nothing significant about it in um, the focus on details of well you know what were the mistakes made well you know the apple was or whatever was given to deception and all this stuff and but it had no theological significance, no application to what this means for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a distraction. It's insipid. Yeah. It's shallow, insipid, disappointing, and there's no, there's no sustenance to be had. And, and yet, but other than even, that, it's really even good. Even that was, was, was such a stretch for people to understand the most basic rhetoric that's, that's been around for you know a long time uh, that they're confused over even though I, I think it's missing the point uh, even the simplest of concepts they're confused about in, in the Bible study I was in I just hesitated to try to to challenge any other ideas at that point because it's a uh, I don't know, I struggle with how do I help the church in my capacities 
They're not going to let me lead. I'll confuse the crap out of everybody. I think Dalton has the answer. What you got for me, Dalton? You're dealing with uh, what age group? High schoolers and junior high kids. And uh, tell us how you're doing with the high schoolers. Christianity doesn't have to be complicated. Like, you don't have to overcomplicate the message of incarnation and salvation. Like, we have to be incarnate as Christ was. So we don't we don't live in sin and death anymore because Jesus showed us how not to. And so taking that sort of message and not making it way up here, but bringing it into a level that's reaching the heart desires before it reaches the head, I think really can change people. And then they can understand because that's how we learn is through our hearts, not through our heads. There's a... Uh a guy at school who's at, who I'm friends with, and he he ministers to, or he he, he uh, leads a, a youth group in a Catholic church, and he started introducing some of this stuff to his youth group. And um, what he does is he just goes to he he goes he started with a lot of the practical stuff, like the the main thing that he started with was the understanding of what the body of Christ looks like, and so they worked through that for several weeks. And then they said, like, how can we apply this with our community, you know, like, and what we're doing here. And they started doing this stuff, and, and it was just like, he just he just kind of presented it as, as you know, as easy as they could understand it. And, uh, and then just as it, as it was, like, he said, this is scripture, you know, basically. And so this is what we're, what we're doing, you know. And it might be easier, like, to do that with, with youth because they're still learning and they're still willing to take in a whole lot of things. They're more pliable. Yeah, and so then when you get to a, an adult Bible study of a, with a group that's been in this system for so long, it's, it's much more difficult to, to present different views. Yeah, I'm probably the youngest by about 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah, that was sort of my point. I think that with junior high or high school, it's not that what's what we're talking about is hard. It's just that it's it's a, a different paradigm.